On this bonus episode of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, I'm fortunate to be joined from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut by Joe Gayeski and Libby Lang. Joe is an MA student at the Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he studies diplomacy and international relations with a focus on the Indo-Pacific region. Libby also studies at the Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, focused on China's digital influence and cross-strait relations. Prior to Yale, she worked as a speechwriter and digital communications manager for Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. Joe and Libby have put together a fascinating paper for the China Research Group, which you can find on our website and all our social channels, looking at how the UK and Taiwan can cooperate more closely without necessarily incurring the wrath of Beijing, although this seems difficult to avoid these days. They've explored climate as a potential way of doing this. This paper is particularly timely in light of last week's backbench business debate in which British MPs pledged to cooperate more closely with the island and promote its role in the international community. Joe and Libby, thanks for jumping out of bed early today to join us. Maybe we could start by, by you telling us what inspired you to, to write this paper on Taiwan and the UK and why did you identify a gap in the market for, for this paper? So our inspiration for the piece came from two sources. Uh, the first was for a class assignment we were looking into the UK's uh, foreign policy documents. And we noticed that in the integrated review from last year, uh, Taiwan was omitted, which struck us as strange. The uh, integrated review does not shy from uh, sensitive topics when it comes to uh, UK-China relations elsewhere. It names Xinjiang, it names Hong Kong, uh, but Taiwan is absent from the review and we wanted to investigate why that is. The second source of inspiration was uh, what we saw as a gap in the debate about uh, about Taiwan, about Taiwan's status. Here in the US, the conversation about Taiwan tends to focus on the question of intervention in the event of an invasion, uh, when we feel there's a lot of room before that choice comes up, uh, if it ever comes up, to, to find ways to make that outcome to make that choice far less likely in the first place. And we wanted to identify ways that foreign policy initiatives can make the event of an invasion a far less likely uh, possibility. Yeah, and I think on my end, uh, coming from my experience living in Taiwan um, and working pretty closely with the president for about two years, um, I saw a lot of other countries kind of coming up with these really interesting and innovative ways to increase their engagement with Taiwan, um, short of you know increased formal relations. Um, and I just thought that that's really a great avenue that we should be exploring more widely across the board in, in more countries. And so, um, you know, Joe had mentioned that there was this omission um, in the UK strategy, and I thought it was a great way to, to look more into that. And to, to take a step back and perhaps define a key term when we're talking about Taiwan in a foreign policy context, Libby, could, could you perhaps explain what the, the status quo on Taiwan means? I feel it's oft discussed by foreign policy analysts and policymakers, but many are still not quite sure where things sort of stand. Um, so maybe could you briefly explain what this notion of status quo means to Taiwan, the, the PRC, the US and the UK, given that it's the, the bilateral uh, relationship with the island that is the organizing principle uh, of your paper? So the current status quo um, across the Taiwan Strait is that Taiwan governs itself under a democratically elected government um, that does not have any relation with or to the Chinese government. Um, it's not under direct Chinese control, although um, 
you know, in the eyes of, of many members of the international community, Taiwan is considered to be a part of China. But under the current system, Taiwan governs itself, but it is not recognized as a country by most members of the international community. Um, and so these countries then have to sort of interact with Taiwan through um, informal channels. A lot of countries don't have um, formal embassies located in Taiwan. And so this current status quo, um, although perhaps not ideal really for, for all parties, um, at least it keeps military conflict from breaking out um, and it sort of keeps Taiwan safe and keeps Taiwan democratic, um, but it also prevents Taiwan from participating in, in really important venues uh, like the World Health Organization, the UN, and, and similar international bodies. Joe, I'm keen to, to push you on, on the UK and, and what our current obligations to Taiwan are. Um, for, for those that don't know, the, the UK follows a, a one China principle um, in terms of the, the PRC and, and Taiwan. And what, what are our obligations to Taiwan? And um, what does this one China principle preclude us from doing? So the basis of the UK's relations with Taiwan uh, are rooted in a, a principle that's essential to the UK's relations with the uh, People's Republic of China in Beijing. The one China policy is the name given to the UK government's acknowledgement of Beijing's position. The PRC is the sole government of China. This is the, the bedrock of UK PRC relations and all uh, interactions between uh, the UK and Taiwan uh, stem from this. Uh, what it precludes is any official diplomatic relations between the UK and Taiwan, any official state-to-state uh, activity or anything that appears as such, though what it doesn't preclude is unofficial, uh, unofficial ties um, in the fields of education or cultural exchanges or research and business. Uh, and these kinds of exchanges at the unofficial level have been a part of UK policy for some decades. Uh, it's, a, um, it's become a part of the status quo and the continuation of these unofficial links are an important part of the status quo uh, that should continue if there is if we're to avoid any deterioration of that status quo. And I'm keen to linger on the UK for a little while longer and our current approach to Taiwan. I'm fascinated about what you have to say about this bilateral relationship, as I think we've always sort of seen the the Taiwan question as as the preserve of the U.S. Due to the obvious economic and security interest that the U.S. has with the island that that we simply don't. But, but perhaps this seems to be changing slightly, what with our, our tilt to the Indo-Pacific, as, as outlined in the Integrated Review, which you mentioned already, um, joining the, the Trans-Pacific Trade Bot, the, the CPTPP, um, and the Foreign Affairs Committee heading out to the island in the coming weeks after this, this recent parliamentary debate on, on our relationship with Taiwan. What do you see as our, our current interest being in Taiwan and how might they, they come under threat should the, the status quo that Libby discussed earlier be undermined in any way? So broadly, the UK's interest in Taiwan and why uh, the UK should invest some time in uh, articulating its policy on Taiwan, uh, its interests fall into three categories. The, the first of which is trade. About 17% of British overseas trade goes through the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and that number will only increase uh, or is likely to increase if the UK joins the CPTPP. We've seen how even small disruptions in those trade routes uh, can lead to cost of living increases at home to lead to inflationary pressure on prices. 
Uh, and we've seen that in the pandemic. If there was any conflict or confrontation in the Indo-Pacific, we can only expect more of those pressures and uh, damage to the UK economy. The second interest is you know, stability. It's uh, from our view, it's, it's hard to imagine if there was a military conflict in Indo-Pacific that the UK would be unaffected. Um, and this is because of uh, both its agreement with the United States and Australia. Though AUKUS doesn't have um, specific commitments, uh, it's uh, increasingly, it seems to be increasingly on the mind of UK parliamentarians uh, that the closer ties um, mean that a uh, UK involvement may be difficult to avoid. For example, former Prime Minister Theresa May asked Prime Minister Boris Johnson when August was announced what the agreement meant uh, in the event of a uh, PRC invasion of Taiwan for Britain. Uh, also, the UK has a, uh, as a naval presence in the region. Just last September, uh, the British Navy sailed a warship through the Taiwan Strait for the first time since 2008. Uh, its military presence and its alliances make, um, make a strong UK interest in avoiding conflict in the region. And the third interest is, um, is political. Uh, the uh, Taiwan is the UK, Taiwan is the, uh, the world's only Chinese speaking democracy. And if, uh, if under Liz Trust, the, uh, the foreign office, the FCDO is serious about building a network of liberty of like-minded liberal democracies, it'll be hard to avoid the political dimension of, uh, of Taiwan. Uh, and it gives the UK an interest in the continuation of Taiwan's democracy. And these interests make it uh, for the reason that it was surprising to us that uh, Taiwan was absent uh, from the integrated review. Um, and we hope that policy on Taiwan can be better defined. No, I think you're absolutely right that we need a, a clearly defined and easily identifiable policy towards Taiwan or set of policies towards Taiwan. And I think that we are moving in, in the right direction on that. Uh, just to, to stick on this idea of conflict, which you mentioned, Joe, um, it's become clear to, to most that, that China has stepped up pressure on Taiwan in, in recent years, but both in terms of increasingly bellicose rhetoric. Um, I think of the Chinese ambassador to the US uh, essentially saying that if the US doesn't stop its, its involvement with the island, that military conflict is, is inevitable and in action too, with, with incursions into Taiwan's air identification zone. Um, and disinformation campaigns to undermine the rule of the, the ruling party, the, the DPP. Um, and these arguably these actions arguably provide the, the biggest threat to the, the accepted status quo at the moment. So, so Libby, why do you think we've seen this, this steady increase in, in provocations towards Taiwan from the PRC in, in recent years? I think part of it stems from a desire to, to harm morale within Taiwan. Um, a lot of experts refer to this as a gray zone warfare tactic. Um, and by gray zone, they mean that um, it doesn't escalate to the point of actual military conflict. It remains kind of below that specific threshold. Um, but Essentially, they're using tactics such as um, encroaching on Taiwan's ADIZ um, to sort of tell the Taiwanese people that, you know, we're here, we're on your doorstep, um, and we seem to be ready to do something, uh, whether they are or not. I think that that can be uh, really frightening to the public to sort of see that kind of thing happening every day um, and happening with increasing frequency. It's quite obvious that it, it happens around sort of politically sensitive moments in time, like around, um, you know, presidential elections or... Um, similar important political moments in Taiwan. And I think at the same time, it also 
acts as a signaling mechanism for other countries, um, not just Taiwan, but other countries saying that, you know, we're here, we're ready, uh, we're preparing, and, and we could have this capability very soon. And I'm going to ask you to, to do a little bit of, of crystal ball gazing, which is perhaps unfair, um, but you, you talked at length about these grey zone activities and ways that the PRC is interfering with Taiwan's democracy. Do you see the the, the PRC under Xi as, as being likely to sort of take any drastic action in the near future? What what do you see as, as Taiwan's short to, to medium term prospects, I guess? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not really in the business of predictions. You know, I don't think anyone at the moment feels super confident uh, predicting what the CCP, especially at the highest levels, is planning on doing just because um, it's such a black box. Uh, I, I will say that for Taiwan's part, um, I think they are, you know, in Taiwan, they're really invested in sort of maintaining stability and the status quo as it exists today. They're not really looking to escalate those tensions Um but at the same time, they're cognizant of the fact that China is building those capabilities. Um, there are estimates in Taiwan that they could be um, in possession of those capabilities by 2025. And so I think the real question is will. Um, you know, does, does China have the will to really undertake um, something that would be so costly um, in terms of human life for, for them as well? Um, and so I think our central thesis for this paper was instead of, I guess, instead of trying to think about you know, will, will that happen in the next few years? Is thinking about what are some creative ways we can think of to to raise the cost of that happening, to sort of prevent it from happening before we ever get to that point of no return. So, moving on to your your fantastic paper that that you've written for the China Research Group, which is centered around climate as being a potential area of cooperation. Obviously, the UK is is undergoing a, a green industrial revolution and has championed effective climate diplomacy. Um, as host of COP26 last year. And the Taiwanese government has also signaled a shift towards using more renewable energy sources and has called on international cooperation in, in order to facilitate and, and expedite this shift. How do you see the, the mechanics of, of climate cooperation working as you've, as you've outlined in your paper? The reason why we felt climate cooperation was perhaps the, the best suited domain for increased Taiwan-UK cooperation uh, is because it's it's a two-for-one policy for the UK. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a big push in UK foreign policy uh, to support uh, the world's energy transition. Uh, and this is a way to do so in a way that has the secondary effect of increasing the security of Taiwan by signaling a commitment to the status quo. The UK already has the foreign policy infrastructure uh, for this kind of policy. Much of it only needs to be extended uh, to Taiwan. Taiwan would simply need to be given a, a, a seat at the, at the tables that the UK has already set up for international climate cooperation. Uh, examples of that include the Climate Change and Energy Network, which is a partnership between UK research centers and their peers in Singapore. Its, it's focus is on ASEAN member states, um, but it could easily be extended to Taiwanese universities and industry groups uh, researching uh, green tech. British Council that regularly does exchanges between uh, researchers and activists, particularly young people between the UK and other countries, and a British Council program focused on green exchanges could be a part of this cooperation. Industry groups who are already present in Taiwan can champion uh, the market as a, as a place for UK leadership in wind turbines and hydrogen fuel cells uh, and industry partnerships 
with Taiwanese industry working in the same areas could also be a part of the cooperation. And then there's also international climate finance, um, the UK's green climate finance arm that can provide funds for joint ventures in green infrastructure. Uh, all of these programs, all of these initiatives would be uh, unofficial in nature, thereby maintaining uh, the UK's one China policy while also strengthening UK ties in Taiwan and bolstering the status quo. And Libby, why do you see climate as a vital but potentially non-provocative area for cooperation between the UK and, and Taiwan? Why might this not be a, a space that Beijing would necessarily kick back on in, in any kind of major way? I think the advantage of, of climate cooperation is that um, it's really conducive to taking place through these non-formal diplomatic channels, um, including, as Joe mentioned, um, there's already a lot of existing industry interest in Taiwan in this area. And so I think that you know, um, the UK can really leverage that existing talent and that existing know-how um, to expand this cooperation. And at the end of the day, climate cooperation is a net positive for everyone. Um, it's I think it's hard for Beijing to say that climate cooperation is disruptive or bad for the region when at the end of the day, we're trying to make the world livable for everyone for the, for the future. Um, and so climate cooperation, it doesn't require changes to the political status quo, which I think is, is really Beijing's bottom line. And so I think that while they might sort of register disapproval of some kind of expanded cooperation, I, I don't think they could take it much farther than that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think Beijing has really positioned itself as a, as a global climate champion, especially since Donald Trump pulled out of the, the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so it would be a bit contradictory in its message if it was to, to work up a fuss about um, climate cooperation um, between the, the UK and, and Taiwan that would, would bring um, positive outcomes to, to everyone. And you, you also mentioned in your paper other areas of cooperation that the UK could could explore with Taiwan that will enable the, the island to, to make positive contributions to the international community and simultaneously raise the, the cost of invasion for the, the PRC. I think experts in the UK and, and MPs in the debate last week talked about deepening trade, closer cooperation in tech, in, in education. Um, what, what areas do you see cooperation being possible? I think that sort of a, a macro level thought on this is that I think the, U the UK should um, continue working to offer Taiwan a seat at the table um, in general when it comes to Taiwan's participation in international organizations. Um, I think that that's really important um, on Taiwan's side, especially for public morale. I think that the public really pays attention to sort of how they've been blocked out of, of international proceedings um, by political interference um, from China. And I know that the UK has, has done a lot to advocate for Taiwan's participation in forums where um, statehood is, is not an obstacle. And so I, I really hope to see that continue. Um, and I think that post-pandemic, we've really seen how important those, those venues can be. You know, Taiwan is not allowed to participate in the WHO or the World Health Assembly, which I think has been a real, a real problem when you're facing a global health challenge like COVID-19. Yeah, the, um, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is that uh, when we think about which uh, which types of cooperation the UK and other like-minded countries can pursue with Taiwan, really any domain of cooperation is welcome, given that our theory of the case is that the UK, um, uh, Taiwan is better off as a 
internationally engaged democracy than a politically isolated one. The climate cooperation uh, strikes us as the most expedient and uh, the domain that the UK is best equipped for uh, relative to other, other countries interested in supporting Taiwan. Uh, but uh, it shouldn't be seen as uh, the final domain, just one amongst many about a, a foreign policy towards Taiwan. Right. I think seeing this form of cooperation as an endpoint would, would be incredibly short-sighted. And I guess my, my last question is is perhaps the most important question. In these high-level discussions on Taiwan, we tend to see Taiwan through the, the prism of great power competition, almost sometimes as a, a bargaining tool that encapsulates this ideological geopolitical arm wrestle um, that, that many policymakers and analysts see the, the PRC and, and the West constantly um, engaged in. My, my question is, what does Taiwan want and how can we better engage with Taiwanese perspectives on all of these complex issues that directly involve Taiwan? I think at the end of the day, if you if you asked Taiwanese people on the street what they want, I think it's that they want to continue to live safely um, in a democracy. I think that most people um, growing up today obviously have never have never lived under anything else. Um, you know, they, they grew up in a fully democratic Taiwan, and that's the only life they've ever known. And I think that I think you're completely right that sometimes we lose sight of that when we think about Taiwan only in the context of great power competition and sort of how we can move our chess pieces across the board and what we can do with Taiwan and how we can leverage Taiwan when, um, you know, there are 23 million people who live there um, going about their lives every day. And and I, I really think it would be good for us to sort of keep that in mind and, and just think about, you know, how, how can we maintain Taiwan's democracy um, and how can we prevent any, any conflict from erupting? Yeah, that definitely seems like the next big challenge for us and one that we'll have to have to approach delicately. Well, I think we've come to the end of uh, of time for this podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can find Joe and Libby's excellent paper at chinaresearchgroup.org. Guys, thank you very much for coming on um, today for this discussion. And we look forward to, to chatting again soon. Thank you.